In the passage that we're about to look at, we see the goodness of God. We see how God determines to bless His people in ways that should amaze us. So please listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are a generous God, and we Respond to your generosity um, in giving these tithes, these gifts, these offerings, and we ask that you would take them and that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, in light of your generosity, we ask that you would Pour out your spirit that as we prepare to sit beneath your word that you would deal with us all and that you would deal with each and every one of us individually no matter how we come with our anxiety, our bitterness, our fears, our joy and happiness, our comfort um, or our burdens. We pray that you would deal with us all individually and reveal to us that we have a Savior. So we pray that you would show us today that despite all of our differing symptoms and how we are facing life at this moment, that beneath it all, we really are all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. 
And so together we need a Savior. We need to be reminded that because of Jesus, His person and work, at the same time that we are far more broken than we can imagine, we are also more loved, more accepted, and more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray that you would reveal this good news to us this morning, and that by this good news, you would change us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask a question. Is there children's church today? There's no children's church today. Okay. Sorry. I'm just getting back into the flow of things. Um, so have to ask some of these questions. But uh, it is great to be back with you this morning after being away a few weeks. Um, and because I've been gone a few weeks, it might be difficult for you to remember. Um, but we, this summer we've been making our way through uh, the latter pa- some of the latter passages in Isaiah's book, in his prophecy. And this morning, we come to Isaiah chapter 55, which is this beautiful, beautiful passages. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And uh, I think part of the reason it's one of my favorite passages is very simply because it's an invitation. And there is, there is something about invitation that resonates very deeply with me, and, uh, and I think you too. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, and maybe this is going to sound at first like my own personal insecurities, and that's okay, but if you give it some, some thought, um, I, I think you'll be able to connect with this as well. And, and what I mean is that I love to be invited, period. <laughs> it doesn't matter to what. I just love to be invited, right? There is a very simple power in an invitation, right? Um, whether that is an evite to somebody's Christmas party or something like that, or that's getting a wedding invitation in the mail, um, or, or even just as simple as somebody calling you up on the phone and saying, hey, I want to invite you to come out and have lunch with me. Um, the invitation could be something very big. It could be something very small, but the power, I think, of an invitation is really undeniable because to be invited, it communicates something to us, right? It communicates value to us. It communicates that you are wanted, right? That it communicates that we are special, that we're significant, that we matter, um, or that we're important. And I do understand that that might sound a little bit needy at first, um, but I, and I'm not going to bore you with a long quote here, but C.S. Lewis, he once gave this really great speech to the students at the University of London, and uh, you could probably find it online somewhere. It's, it was called The Inner Ring, and, um, and in that speech, he talked about what he called the phenomenon of the inner ring, which is drawn between individuals with invisible lines, uh, different groups of people. Um, And he made this bold statement in that speech about the inner ring where he said, I believe in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of of being left outside. Lewis called this desire 
to be invited into the inner ring, one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. In other words, he's saying, this desire is driving all of our actions all of the time. To be inside and the terror of being left outside. I don't know if I, I, I'm succeeding right now in connecting this to you or not, but I'm using Lewis to try to convince you that my desire and your desire to be invited inside, it isn't really, it isn't really needy at all, but is in fact very deeply human, right? Lewis said, it is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you don't matter, that is much worse, right? Deep within our humanity is this desire that we have to be invited in, to matter, to know that we're valuable and significant and important. And a lot of that is communicated to us in the power of an invitation. You know, middle schoolers and high schoolers, I think, they, they try to play it cool and they say, I, I didn't even want to go anyway. I don't care if I was invited, right? I want you and me this morning to try to put away some of that childness and that immaturity and really stop and admit that this desire to be invited in and the terror of being left out, it is driving us more profoundly than we often care to admit. And if you get that, I think this invitation in Isaiah 55, if you understand that, it just might crack through the hardness of your heart with a beauty that will change us deeply, change us profoundly. Because, you see, it's a beauty that answers to the longings of our hearts, to the desires and the hopes of our hearts. And so, with all of that in mind, I want us to think through this invitation as Isaiah 55 with three points. First, there's an invitation to all here. And then second, it's an invitation with a condition. And third, it's an invitation to celebrate, right? So the invitation is to every one of us, and this invitation has a condition. And finally, we are being invited in this passage to celebrate together. So first, an invitation to all. Now, before I get into it directly, I I want you to hang with me just a couple of minutes to talk about what's at stake here. What is this invitation in Isaiah 55 really all about? Verse 1, you see, heralds this invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is clearly an invitation to a feast, and not just to a feast to be nourished, right? Although that's present, but this is a very rich and lavish feast, right? Wine and milk. But see, it's in verse 3 that the beautiful and very vivid metaphors here, they give way to a very explicit statement to say that it's not just a feast or a banquet that you are being, being invited to that feeds you physically, right? It's the feast that gives life to your soul, verse 3 says. An invitation to quench the thirst beneath the thirst. An invitation to assuage the hunger beneath the hunger. And this invitation, right, it, it is a feast in verse 7 that is inviting you all the way in to the compassion and to the mercy 
and to the pardon of God, right? It, it is to, to come to this feast is to have your deepest hopes, your deepest needs, your deepest desires met. And it go, this invitation goes out to every one of us. Now, just a second here, something with the grammar, because there is something unique about this invitation in the original Hebrew. And if, if you can listen, listen for just a second, I think it'll make sense. It, but it's really, really hard to get this across in an English translation, because the verb to come in verse 1, it's plural, right? So, southern translation would be, y'all come, is what it's saying, right? But then immediately, the everyone who thirsts there is singular. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that grammatically, that's very, very difficult. But theologically, it is absolutely beautiful what's happening here. Because the invitation is simultaneously to all and also to each one of you individually and very personally. This is God speaking to you personally, inviting you to come to this feast. And see, even though, and here's why I think this is important. Even though we hear that it's an invitation to all, because of our insecurities and because of what we know about ourselves, we are all very tempted to say, yeah, but not me. Right? Yeah, but I'm probably the exception here. Because you'll say, yeah, maybe for him or for her, but I know it can't be for me. Right? I've got too many questions. I've got too many doubts, right? For her or him, maybe, but I've blown it too big. There is just too much sewage and baggage clinging to my heart for it to be for me, right? I've got too many struggles, and there's too much hypocrisy in me. And listen, I want to sympathize with you, but because of this passage, I can only sympathize so far because this invitation is to everyone and to each of you personally, that you would come. This invitation says, it really, really does not matter who you are. And it doesn't matter how you grew up. And it doesn't matter what was done to you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter what you have accomplished or what you have failed to accomplish. And you cannot outsin, and you cannot outquestion, and you cannot outstruggle this invitation. You, all of you, are personally invited to have your deepest needs and hopes met at this feast. Years ago, I was reading, flipping through this golf magazine, and I saw this story that caught my eye. And it caught my eye initially because it was an interview with someone's caddy. And uh, Normally, caddies aren't interviewed, right? Um, They're not exactly the stars. They carry the clubs. Um, So I read this article, and and I I ended up loving this little interview, and I tore it out and held on to it. Um, But the caddy interviewed, um, he was the caddy for a golfer named Tom Pernice Jr. And at one point, the interviewer asked this caddy, a uh, very simple question. Just ask him, what, this past year, what was your most memorable uh, event on tour? And this is what he said. 
When Tom won his second PGA Tour title at the International last year, Brooke, his six-year-old daughter who is blind, jumped into his arms to feel his expression with her hands. And I love that story. I mean, that this little girl jumped into her father's arms, blind but confident that he was going to catch her, right? She knew that she would be welcomed into his embrace, that she would be invited all the way in. How much closer, more intimate can you get, right, to feeling the expression of his delight and his smile with her hands? The invitation here is to every one of us, to all, that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you have done, this invitation is to come all the way in, all the way in to the arms of your Father. It's an invitation to jump, right? To jump into His arms and to lift your hands, to feel the delight and the smile and the joy on His face. But it isn't a smile or a delight over some silly golf tournament. This passage is saying that his delight is over you individually and personally. His compassion and his mercy and his pardon for you. All your objections, but not me, they don't matter. Because his grace, it is bigger and larger than all your failures all your questions, all your doubts. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, second, let's move on to consider that this is an invitation with a condition. And immediately, someone's very likely to say, I knew there was a catch. Um, And I need you to suspend that judgment for just a moment for you to understand what I'm talking about here. I think it's very natural for us, though, to think that there is a catch here, right? Because every invitation that you and I receive, it's generally conditioned upon something, right? You get an invitation conditioned on your social circles, right? You got invited to a party because of who you know, right? Or we get an invitation conditioned on our resume, on our achievements or accomplishments or credentials or performance or whatever. Or we get invitations that are conditioned upon our connections or our origin, where we went to school at such and such a place, or, or we are part of whatever society. Or maybe It might even be as simple as being conditioned on what you bring, you know, BYOB or something like that. But that was supposed to be funny. But this invitation's, I I need, uh, man, our laugher, Amanda, is not here this morning. um, And uh, she usually helps me out. But but listen, this this invitation's condition, it's very, very different, right? Put very, very simply, this, the condition here is that you would come empty-handed, right, without money and without price. To come, you have to come with absolutely nothing. All you can bring is your need, your helplessness, your brokenness, your hunger, and your thirst. You know, someone uh, told me several months ago that to talk about being thirsty— among the youth today is, is a euphemism to talk about sexual desire. And, um, 
And I had a good laugh because I use that metaphor a lot, and I just imagine what people are probably thinking. Um, but it also, um, it also just made me laugh because it reminded me of how out of touch I really am. Um, but then in the next moment I thought, that is a perfect application of the metaphor, right? Verse 1 gives us this grand invitation to come to this feast, right, to everyone. But then verse 2, it, verse 2 is really, a, it's a slowdown verse. It slows everything down to a crawl, right? And it's forcing us to reflect. I hope you see that. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. I mean, he's saying stop and think about all the ways you are trying to assuage your deepest hunger and quench your deepest thirst. And most definitely, there's an application to sexual desire here, right? Look, only a very crude and shallow understanding would equate sexual desire with something that is solely physical, right? The deeper desire is fulfillment, right? Of It's the thirst to know and be known intimately, right? It's this deeper desire to know that I'm loved, to know that I'm valued, to know that I'm desired, right? That's what we're after. And God is saying that we are chasing so many, many things that turn to ash in our hands, that can never ultimately satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And sexual desire is one of many, uh, uh, one of, um, among many, that we give chase to, right? Seeking to fulfill ourselves, to gain that acceptance and to gain that value. Because we give chase to it in our careers, right? In the successes that we enjoy. We give chase to it in our marriages or in getting married or in our friendships or in our achievements or, or in the size of our paychecks, right? Or even in our parenting, right? We tell ourselves, if I could just know that I'm a good parent, that would satisfy me and fulfill me because that would tell me my worth. That would tell me my value and my importance and my significance. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I got a I got poison ivy again. I am just terribly allergic to that stuff. And uh, if you have ever had poison ivy before, you know the feeling of that itch, right? Like it makes it makes me itchy just to say the word poison ivy. And I'm serious; it it really does. And um, you know, it's this it's this very very deep itch, right? It's different. It's, you know, it's not on the surface, and so you're constantly when you have this poison ivy, you're constantly tempted, still itchy, and so you know you're constantly tempted to scratch it, even though you know you shouldn't scratch it. And then at some point, you cave in and you scratch it, and it feels so good to scratch it. Um, so good. It just like makes your teeth tingle. It feels that good to get it. But the problem with that is that the moment you scratch that itch, the more it itches. And it keeps on itching more and more, and it's absolutely miserable, right? See, verse 2 is exposing our foolishness, right? We are scratching itches that always leave us itching for more because they were never meant to satisfy the deepest longings and desires of our hearts. But here's the thing. Verses 8 and 9 are saying that all our scratching 
and all our chasing is more than just foolishness. It is deep rebellion, right? Because in effect, we are turning verses 8 and 9 upside down, and we are saying to God, no, our ways and our thoughts are higher than yours. We know best how to quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. To have your hunger and thirst satisfied, this passage is saying, you have to come empty-handed. See, verse 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and so on. See, what that verse is saying is saying, you have to let go. You have to forsake. You have to drop every effort to quench your thirst and satisfy your hunger and turn to the Lord empty-handed with nothing. There's a word for that in the Bible of what's being talked about in verse 7, and it's the word repentance. Repentance is to turn to the Lord with nothing in your hand. Look, Augustus Toplady, he wrote many hymns, and we're, in a few minutes we're going to sing his most famous hymn, which is Rock of Ages. And it's a song about salvation, but it's also a song about repentance. And in that song, we are going to sing together, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. See, that's it. That is the condition, repentance. You must bring nothing in your hand. You must come naked, needy, and helpless. Now, let me tell you what is really, really hard about this invitation's condition. To come with nothing means that you don't simply have to let go of and turn from and drop all your sins. See, it also means that you have to let go of and turn from and drop all your claims to righteousness. See, this is what makes Christianity unique among every major world religion. Because every major world religion knows something of repentance for sins. Right? But only Christianity says, that's not enough. You have to repent of your righteousness too. You really do have to come without money and without price, to use the metaphor. Jesus in the Gospels, some of you will remember, He tells us that the gate is narrow, right? And in fact, I think Jesus is saying that it is so narrow that if you are holding on to anything, you cannot squeeze through. If you are holding on to not just sexual desires or greed or any of our idolatries of career and those kind of things, but if you're holding on to your conservative values, or if you're holding on to your moral performance or your sincerity or your obedience, you can't get through that gate and come to this feast. You have to come with the empty hand of a beggar without money and without price. And I would say to you, it doesn't get any freer than this. And if that does some kind of assault, assault on your logic, right, that nothing's that free, you are in fact partly right. <laughs> because this feast that meets all of our deepest desires, 
that brings us under the smile and delight of God, it is free to us, but not because it's without cost, right? Jesus came to pay for this feast with his life and his death and his resurrection. He came to live the life you should have lived. He came to die the death you should have died. Right, in order that you and I would be invited all the way in. That's the only way to break the power of the inner ring is His grace. See, it's only when that truth dawns upon your heart that Jesus did this for you, right? That you begin to understand your true value, your true worth, your true significance to the God of the universe, that he would give up his own son like this, and only by coming empty-handed will you be able to eat what is good, as our passage says, delight yourself in the richest of foods, eat that your soul may live. Okay, finally, come to this last point, and that, that it's this, that this invitation is an invitation to us to celebrate. The passage ends, you might say, with the end in view, okay? So when man fell into sin, the world started coming undone. It started unraveling at the seams, right? And thorns and briars sprang up, biting and stinging and choking life away, right? But verse 13 says that there is a day coming when instead of thorns and briars, the evergreen trees right, of cypress and myrtle will grow. Life and flourishing is coming forever, right? Life and flourishing in the place of death and struggle. And verse 12 says that in that day, we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and hills will burst forth in singing, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And I have no idea what that means, but it's going to be amazing, right? I mean, it's talking about the day when God's redemption of the entire cosmos is completely and fully and finally realized when Jesus comes again, and every bit of brokenness will be undone, and every wrong will be made right. And in that day, the celebration will be so full and so complete that all of creation will join with us in singing in celebration. But here's the question that I, I really want to answer in this last point. What about the time in between? Right? What about the time of frustration? Right? How do we go on celebrating right now in the midst of thorns and briars? And how do we celebrate what is ours now in Jesus right now in Jesus, but not fully and completely. Let me give you three ways from this passage that I think we are to celebrate now in the midst of thorns and briars and really bear witness by our celebration to the world around us. We are to celebrate with these three things, with truth, with beauty, and with feasting. First truth. You could say that this whole passage is really about the Word of God. It really is. I mean, you, you, 
listen, incline your ear. We're being told to respond to God's voice. And then God's word in verses 10 through 11, it's, it's likened to rain and snow that falls from the heaven on the earth, right, um, and produces fruit. We live in a world and in a culture that is radically adrift with no anchor. And the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, right? And if we're going to grow and become who and what God means us to be in the midst of our adrift, anchorless world, it will be by stopping and listening to the voice of the one who made us and made all things. You have to stop and listen and pay attention to his voice. It will be by reading and meditating and praying through his word in order that his word and his truth would come and shape our lives. So I do want to ask you very pointedly, as a friend, as your pastor, how you are doing with this. I mean, are you doing these? Are you daily giving yourselves to these kind of things? Because it is truth that produces fruit like this. It is truth that will shape us. The way to celebrate this invitation is to be saturated. That's the metaphor, right, of rain and snow, to be saturated with God's truth in order that it would produce fruit in us. You know, Paul wrote to the Philippians that they were to shine like stars in the universe, that they were to shine like stars against the backdrop of a crooked and depraved generation, he says. How do you do that? in the in-between? How do you shine like that in the midst of crooked depravity, in the frustration, in the midst of thorns and briars? This is what Paul told the Philippians, by holding fast to the word of life. We have to become a people who are bleeding Scripture, oozing Scripture. I don't care if you can quote verse and chapter, but we need to be a people who are so saturated with the truth that it's coming out of us all the time. Second thing that I want to mention here about how we celebrate this invitation is beauty. See, verses 3 to 5 refer to David, who is this warrior leader and commander of the peoples, and he subdued as a warrior the nations around him. And then God says in these verses that he is actually making a people who will also call the nations and subdue the nations. See, verse 5 says, he, he says, The nations will run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. But a better translation there of the end of that verse is that, For he has beautified you. For he has made you beautiful. This is why the nations will run to you. See, God is saying, like David, this people is going to conquer the nations. But unlike David, you won't conquer with a sword or with power or in battle like that, but you will conquer the world around you with beauty and grace. Like many of you over this past week, I have seen and read probably too much about um, the Supreme Court's decision over marriage. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to spend a Sunday uh, for us talking through that uh, in, a, in a sermon because I do think it's important for us. But, um, but yesterday or the day before, I can't remember which, I, I read a very interesting article in the New York Times by David Brooks. And interesting because he's not a Christian, you understand. Um, 
And on social issues like these, he is to the far left of Christianity. But his comments to, to Christians were very, very interesting in that article. And I would actually encourage you to go find it and read it, because he doesn't write to encourage Christians to change their views on sexuality. But he's really saying that if Christians want to seize the day, they need to change their tactics. Um, and basically, he sees this cultural war that's happening. And what makes this article so interesting is that he sees it as an opportunity for Christians to, as he puts it, reweave the sinews of society. Right, and it's really fascinating to hear someone who is not a Christian saying things like this, but he basically is saying to Christians, if you want to change the world, live beautiful lives like you claim to believe. It's, it's a pretty harsh rebuke when you think about it, coming from a non-Christian. He writes, social conservatives could be the people who help reweave the sinews of society. They already subscribe to a faith built on selfless love. They can serve as examples of commitment. They are equipped with a vocabulary to distinguish right from wrong, what dignifies from what demeans. They already, but in private, tithe to the poor and nurture the lonely. Lots of other great quotes in his article, but, but you know what he's saying as a non-Christian? He's saying, celebrate the beauty of your faith by living public lives of beauty before the world, and he is saying the nations will run to you. They will run to you, and you will conquer in beauty and in truth. So I'm asking you, if your life is matching up with the beauty of the story that you claim to be your own, is it matching up to the story of the selfless love of a Savior who came to rescue and redeem the broken, and to welcome the outsider, and to extend the invitation to all? That is how we will change the world. And finally, we celebrate in the in-between by feasting. The table that is before us this morning, communion, the Lord's Supper, on it there is bread and wine. Bread and wine representing the body and the blood of Jesus. And we are invited to come to this table and to feast together, to come to Jesus in this meal and feast and be reminded that only He can satisfy our deepest longings, hopes, and desires. See, He invites us to this table again and again, right? We celebrate this meal once a month, every month. We gather to worship every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, to be reminded that this invitation, it is even for people like us, believe it or not. Broken as we are, we come to this table, and in this table we feast on truth and beauty, right? To be nourished in the good news of the gospel, that the God of the universe so valued, so cherished, so desired, so loved you that His own Son would come and die for you. And we are reminded in this time of in-between, in this very meal that we celebrate, that when we take it, we are proclaiming that He will come again. And when He comes again, all brokenness will be mended, and every wrong will be righted. And in that day, we will celebrate fully and completely forever and ever, and the mountains and the trees will join in our chorus. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that by your Spirit, you would nourish us with it, that we would feast upon this word that you have given to us, and that you would prepare our hearts as we prepare to come to this table to be reminded of the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this would be a sober time for us, but not a somber time. That in coming to feast, we would come with joy in our hearts. For Jesus has come, and He has come to invite us to this feast in order to fill us and fulfill us with Himself. Father, we pray that this good news would sink deeply into our hearts, that we would become a people who are shaped by the truth of your word, that we would become a people who live lives of beauty because of the beauty we see in Jesus, and that that we would be a people of all people who know how to come to this table with joy in our hearts to feast. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.